0: Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits.
1: Hey everyone, welcome to Let's Get Civical.
2: This is the podcast that breaks down politics, government structure, and dives into the context of current events, but in a super fun way. I'm Lizzie Stewart, comedian, feminist, and political junkie.
1: And I'm Arden Wallentowski, former Senate intern, campaign staffer, and political strategist.
2: In this episode, we're talking about American libraries.
1: So grab your library card.
2: And let's get civical. Hello, everybody.
1: Oh, hello. and how hello. are you today? Oh, because
2: it's a conversation we're having.
1: <laughs> well, we are recording
2: on Easter. It's it's the we Lord's are. Day. He is risen, mm-hmm. and so are we, like phoenix eye from the ashes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Not that we're comparing ourselves to Jesus; that will send us straight to hell. For the thousandth time.
2: Could you imagine? Could you imagine? We have nothing in common except right now. I think my hair is similar.
1: To Jesus? Agreed.
2: To Jesus. To Jesus. Yes, I'm rocking a Jesus hairstyle right now. Uh, shout out to Jesus' hairstylist, Mary mm. Magdalene. Um, but, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's Easter. It's the evening. We're recording at a different time, which means things are going to get Weird
1: things are going to get gonna weird get capital w weird. I am in a, a new location again and and you know what whenever that happens things get weird. You never know what's going to happen.
2: Yeah. I am in my new my apartment still but have moved into a different room that has more furniture so it's less echoey. So we're going to see how this pans out. But it's just sort of like an adventure every time we record on what am I gonna hear in the audio today? (laughs) Seriously, we've
1: had some like really interesting moments recently that's like,
2: okay, it's only been two years. Okay.
1: But you know, sure.
2: We appreciate everybody for bearing with us. I mean, simply, we just have to. Get a recording studio.
1: (laughs) Seriously.
2: Shout out to all the podcasters who've been doing this like us remotely. It's hard. It's hard. And that's what nobody tells you is that it's hard to constantly be uh, making audio quality content with erratic surroundings.
1: (laughs) Just sirens, animals, sounds, humans.
2: Oh my. I mean... Yeah. It's like the rest of the world doesn't know that, okay, I'm trying to record right now. Yeah. And it's rude. It's rude that they don't know.
1: It's really upsetting. Mm -hmm. They should know.
2: It's really upsetting. But what's not upsetting is how, like, what we're going to talk about today and how it came to pass. So I'm so excited about this because... We got a DM in the Let's Get Civical DM on Instagram, which by yeah, the by, if you're yeah. listening, go follow us on Instagram at Let's Get Civical, Civical and Twitter. Because the reason why is we, we do check these things when we get DMs and we do respond to people when they DM us. And this particular human who I don't have clearance to say, I didn't ask if I could say who they are. So I'm not going to. You know who you are. Uh, I just don't want to put you on blast. But this beautiful, beautiful human reached out to us and informed us that it's library week, like National Library Week coming up this week. So amazing. I know. And asked if we can do an episode on American libraries. And we said, absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Uh,
2: Of Of course. course. There is no other
1: option now for this week.
2: Yes. The moment the moment that DM came in, we we scrapped all other ideas mm-hmm. <laughs> and we decided on this.
1: Because everything else can wait. We must elevate the library. Everything
2: else so. can wait. Yes, absolutely. It's this is and also it's library week. So we certainly want to be yes. current with a capital C. So yes. With that said, before we jump into the episode, I just want to say, if you want to hear something or want to hear us cover a topic or are curious about something, simply reach out. And I can almost guarantee <laughs> that we will do that episode unless yeah. it's really weird. And, you know, and even the then, point we is, probably find even a then, way to work with it. It would have to be like highly absolutely.
1: offensive for us to not do it.
2: Right, right, correct. So please DM us. Please reach out to us. Let us know what you want to hear because I, it makes my heart sing. Um, so this episode is dedicated to that beautiful human who DM'd us about American libraries. We love you so, so much. This is your episode. Yeah. You get your own trumpets when you suggest an episode. You get your own Lizzie trumpets.
1: (laughs) It's worth it. It's worth it just for the trumpets.
2: It is. It is. So I, in doing research for this, I found two amazing sources that I had never heard of, but that literally this entire episode, other than the fun facts, are coming from two places. One, and if you hear a bell, it's because there's a cat running around my apartment with a bell collar. So... Apologies for that. Again, the the, the environment is chaotic. But the two sources are the American Library Association, which is a phenomenal association. We'll talk about the ALA. We'll talk about the ALA, the formation, etc. And then this amazing source from the Digital Public Library of America that had this kind of like online exhibition about libraries. And I'm saying like 85% of the notes are from that. It's like so thorough on the history of libraries, how they came to be, the different types of libraries, all sorts of library information. Yeah, it's it's truly both of these sources are really great. So huge shout out to them. Appreciate your work. I love libraries. I'm a huge fan. I'm a member of the New York Public Library. I mean, there's no better place, I think. No. So, I say we just jump right in. We yeah. open that book and we get movin' and groovin', and we're going to start with what I call ye old library timeline. So sort of <laughs> I slip and love it. A so couple good. of dates In, you know, the Hamanashah times, just to kind of lay the land for us, kind of get a general sense of how we got from point A to point B. Some of these points we're going to talk about and flesh out a little later as well. But the American Library Association gave this really great timeline that I thought was super interesting. And if I think it's interesting, it's in the notes. So here we go. And again, all coming from ALA. Let's start with 1731, shall
1: we? I think that's an excellent idea.
2: An excellent year for us, really. For just U.S. I mean, we weren't U.S. yet, but like we were, you know, pre-U.S. So libraries existed in America before the establishment of the American Library Association. So that came later. The first public library in the United States is contested, but there are three generally accepted answers. The first is the Library Company of Philadelphia, which was founded in November 1731 by Stallion in the (gasps) Sheets. Benjamin Franklin. I love that all I have to do is say Stallion in the Sheets, and you know exactly who I'm going to say. Oh, yeah, no. Benjamin Stallion in the Sheets, Franklin. You're correct. That's his Christian name.
1: Exactly right. Yep.
2: It was a subscription library, which we'll talk about later what that means, and supported by members of the subscription library. So that's 1731. This is like probably the most notorious of the kind of first libraries. Okay. and, And we'll talk, we'll flesh out the library company in just a second. Then there's 1833. So the first free modern public library was opened in 1833. The Peterborough New Hampshire town libraries was the first institution funded by a municipality with the explicit purpose of establishing a free library open to all classes of the community. So the Peterborough Town Libraries was the first what we would kind of associate as a public library where you Oh that means, like you no, don't have to pay. It.
1: Yeah. Pay. It's
2: like it's a community service type of thing. Then in 1840, the first library card catalog <gasps> was created at Harvard. Of course, they had all of the books. They have all because they had all the they books. They had every that, single that book were, that was ever every single made. book was there.
1: Every published book.
2: Also in 1840, the same year as Harvard developed the card catalog, the University of South Carolina opened the first separate academic library building. There had been university libraries before, but they were housed in multi-use buildings, The University of South Carolina Library is the oldest continually operating library building in the country. So shout out to the University of South Carolina. I'm sorry.
1: Do you want to know where I am right now?
2: Are you in South Carolina? I'm in South Carolina (laughs) right right now. (laughs) Well, you should go to the University of South Carolina Library and be like... Oh go to the oldest library. Oldest, oldest... um, uh continually uh, library bu- operating library building, you know, because all the other all the other universities were like, let's put it in the gym. It's the mm. gym and the library and also where you have food. Right. Right. And South Carolina was sitting around being like, we have a lot of books. We, have we got, a, got lot a lot of stuff going on. People and like not to read a lot of space. Yes. I just think I think we should just build the, our own building. I think we should I just end we
1: should leave just... it there.
2: And just kind of make it only the library. Kickbox can you know?
1: happen someplace else. There is an South outside like for a reason. Let's
2: just do a separate building and it's slavery. 1840. That's when that conversation happened. Crazy. Then in 1848, the Boston Library became the first free municipal library in a large community. So the Boston Library is also one of those libraries that people talk about as far as like legacy. And it's very large. Yeah, Very large. And then in 1853, the first conference with the intent to form a permanent library organization was held in New York City in 1853. So we're going to talk about this a little bit later. This is kind of the formation of the ALA. I'm putting this in here because this is on their website. And this is the second sentence of this note. Oh. Unfortunately, the follow-up conference scheduled for the following year was never held. Oh. They basically. We started slacking right away. Right away. They just didn't do the second meeting. And I love that they included it on their website about themselves being formed, essentially. Yes. And the first note is, we attempted to do this, but nobody kind of followed up. Hysterical. <laughs> so Hysterical. To redo it again, so couple of couple of key ye old timing points um, before we really jump into the meat of the the meat of the episode.
1: Yeah. So the library company, with the rise of non-religious texts and literacy rates in in the 1700s, private book clubs among wealthy men evolved into subscription libraries. Okay.
2: Private. Book clubs among wealthy men. Oh my god. Can you imagine a worst case scenario? Reading
1: is only for the white men.
2: It's only for the white, the wealthy white men. Yes. Only they could read. Oh, bless them. Bless them so bless him, much. Bless them, bless them.
1: Subscription or membership libraries were funded by membership fees or donations with collections accessible only to paying members. Mickey.
2: It's like... While It's like Soho House, but a library. Exactly. Exactly.
1: So while today there are fewer than 20 membership libraries in existence in the U.S., many of which focus on special collections or rare material rather than a varied book selection, from the late 1700s to the mid-1800s, they sprang up in cities across the country.
2: I mean, who doesn't love a private book club?
1: Oprah loves a book club, but she has made hers- I mean- her list is, you do have to uh, acquire the reading material, but the club, the, like, Oprah's Book Club is free, no?
2: I don't know, but I would hope so. I hope so. We'll look into it.
1: Great. The first of these libraries was formed in Philadelphia under the direction of Stalin in the Sheets, Benjamin Franklin, and would come to be known as the Library
2: Company. I wish there was a different name. Yeah. I really do. I kind of expected more of Ben, but perhaps it's because he was busy, so he just kind of phoned in the title. He was
1: like, I'm feeling, I'm feeling, it's a library, and it's a collection of people, a company. And, yes. Yes, I feel like we could have had a better name. Ben Franklin worked with other members of what was called the Junto, Junto? Junto. Junto? Junto.
2: J-U-N-T-O.
1: That's that's its name. A club, oh my god. I know,
2: I know, (laughs) I, yeah. Which was a mm-hmm. club of
1: mm-hmm. thinkers, okay, <sighs> that gathered to discuss, quote, queries on any point of morals, politics, or natural philosophy, close quote. And I would just like to point out that the the M in morals, the P in politics, and the N and P in natural philosophy are all capitalized. So they're all proper nouns. Yes. That's hysterical. A club of thinkers yes. that gathered to discuss queries... I feel like we've done that at your birthday parties on your roof. Like we've done that
2: as that I. It, it's a club of thinkers. Have you? It's a club of
1: thinkers. Have you inquiries like, uh, like what is the what is the difference? Of whether I have a. Live you mean katana? when I threw
2: myself a Sean Astin themed birthday party? Is that yes, what, you did, is and that, that was the club of thinkers. You're. <laughs> yeah.
1: That is exactly. We talked over beer pong. That is exactly what I am referring to.
2: That's true. That's true. And and yeah. it's and it's crazy that we're still not considered founding fathers at this point.
1: It it is absolutely insane.
2: It's a crime, I would say. Yeah. But yes, he a club of thinkers. A club of thinkers and morals politics or natural philosophy.
1: Oh, what's unnatural philosophy? What do we think that is? I don't know. Or do we think natural refers to like nature maybe? I don't know. But that whole quote is coming directly from Ben Franklin as described in his autobiography.
2: From the street from the horse's mouth.
1: Who are we to argue with the stallion? With the stallion. So Franklin and the other, mm, here's the word again, Junto members, primarily merchants, owned few books and were looking for a way to access more material for their weekly discussions. Using money from the Junto members alongside a 40 shilling investment from each of the library's first 50 members, library company organizers started its first collection. By 1732, they had sent the library's first book order to London. Oh, so they're getting them, yeah, they're getting them from London. They're like, we've got money. Let's build a collection. We've got money. Let's go to London to buy some books. Yes
2: would like to buy some books. I'd like to buy your best books as specifically on morals, politics, and natural philosophy.
1: Yes. Please send those. If you, whatever you have, we will, ship. we will take. Yes. We will take. <laughs> we will take. Though many of the library's early books were about education or religion, the collection expanded to feature broader topics. Notably, a majority of the library company's books were written in English. At the time, most other private and university libraries had collections Primarily in Latin.
2: No. You mean Latin? Very unhelpful. Very, uh, very Ooh, unhelpful. I'm a, I'm a private library and I'm only going to have books in Latin. So only the Latin readers can read it.
1: Oh my God, which means you had to like have Snobbs. gone to school. Snobs for Latin because Latin is yeah a dead-ass language. Okay.
2: Is dead. I don't think it was dead-ass then though. There's a lot of Latin speakers.
1: But did they speak Latin or do they just read Latin? I don't know that you conversed Uh, in Latin.
2: I think you read Latin. Oh, sure. I get... Well, Mm -hmm. this is crazy. But don't... Doesn't the church do services in Latin?
1: Yeah, but that's like... That's not conversational Latin. That's true.
2: That's not like, hey, how's it going? Take any air baths lately?
1: Right, right, right. It's like... (laughs) I am now showing you the body of Christ. And the reason, fun fact, that you that the Catholic Church had the bells for when the priest was like, here's the Eucharist and I bless it and he does the thing. The reason that they had mm-hmm. the bells was because the mass was in Latin or whatever, you know, foreign language.
2: Mm. Many in so Latin. people could know.
1: And so people would know that when the bells rang, okay, now it's God. It's no longer the bread. It's yeah. God now. Sound cues. Yeah. Sound cues.
2: Well, Benjamin Franklin's doing this shit in English, which I'm all about.
1: Yes, I am so grateful. Library members could access the books that they ordered from London as they pleased, while non members would need to provide collateral for their borrowed book. Here
2: is my cow. <laughs> give me your sheep, Please and give then me you a book. can read The Great Gatsby. <laughs> 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 so, yeah, so that is private. Like the beginning of what private libraries are, which is kind of the foundation of how we end up springboarding into public libraries, which is kind of, I think the note said earlier, the majority of libraries that we know now are public libraries. Private libraries are kind of archaic and only for fancy documents and parchment and rare manuscripts, that sort of thing. But let's talk about the formation of Public libraries. And and again, these notes are still from the Digital Public Library of America. Please visit if you want to learn more. So, public libraries. So, Benjamin Franklin, (laughs) we're still on his, we're still on him, also played a role in the development of the first lending library in 1790, I know. Franklin donated a collection of books to a Massachusetts town that named itself after him. I mean, uh, yeah. Sure. Yeah, I will go on record now and say if you name your town after me, I will give you my books. Sh- sure. I do have the Fifty Shades of Grey collection. It could be yours. Amazing. At the small, small price of naming your town after me,
1: I do have a very damaged copy of the sixth Harry Potter book that I would happily donate to anybody who wants. I would choose my first name to name a town after me. Sure,
2: city. I feel of like Arden. my last
1: name is yes. I feel, and I'm mm-hmm. sure there is one. I feel like my last name is just too too long to sure. do to a city's residents. I have mean, to write that on their
2: mail. Sure, that's a lot. That's a lot. That's fair. I'm willing to compromise. Whatever you want to do. Whatever you want to name yourself. As long as it's kind of after me. That would be great. So this town had had initially asked Franklin to donate a bell. He determined that, quote, sense was more important than, quote, sound. He was like, you guys, I get why you need a bell or you would ask for a bell. Because, yeah, bells are flashy. Can you be a town without a bell? I That's totally cool. understand that. But I'm actually going to give you this thing that you did not ask for, which is education. Here's my books. Here you go. Yep. Love them for that. Franklin residents voted for those donated books to be freely available for town members, creating the nation's first public library. They were like, this shouldn't be members only. Oh. Public libraries began spreading in earnest in American towns and cities after the Civil War, sure, I mean, you know. Once we're done with that, let's get the libraries going. Let's go. These lending libraries are defined as broad, governed, and tax-funded instead of operated under a subscription model. Mm. Most importantly, they are open to all, do not charge for their services, and focus on serving the needs of the general public. So again, this is kind of how we know libraries today. It's a community asset. Yeah. The first totally tax-supported library was established in Peterborough, New Hampshire in 1833. So that was one of the fun facts at the top. And while there were many other libraries that met new public-oriented milestones, like the Darby Free Library in Pennsylvania, which has been in continuous service since 1793, the first large, capital L large, public library was the Boston Public Library, Founded in 1848. It then opened finally in 1854, and all Massachusetts residents could borrow from this collection, which began with 16,000 volumes. Well, that's so many. How do you have 16,000 books in 1848, 1854? Who's writing? That is why. That's a lot of books.
1: That's a lot of books. You know, a lot of them were probably by the saints and the apostles.
2: No, you're so right. God, all they did was write stuff down.
1: All they did was write stuff down. Talk
2: about journalers. Seriously. Yeah. They wrote down
1: every single thought. They free wrote wrote a lot.
2: Yes, yes. We're going to take a quick break for a little word from our sponsors.
0: You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything.
1: So, then we're going to talk about the American Library Association. This is coming from, shocker, the American Library Association <laughs> and the the Digital Public Library of America. So, men from New England's elite families, here we go, <laughs> were the predominant players in the early U.S. library movement.
2: I just want to say, because they're the only ones that could read.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. there like, was only... It wouldn't have benefited anybody else. Nobody else could read. So what did they have? Like, no, unless you're talking about a picture book.
2: uh, Exactly right. I'm just like, yeah, they were the predominant players. They were the only players. Only players. In the game. Yes. Who else is going to make a library? You won't let them read. You won't let them read. Who else is going to do
1: it? So along with these men, a number of women from the elite classes volunteered at libraries, particularly for work with children, of course.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: What else would a woman be in a library? Honestly, no. <laughs> obviously to work remember. with kids. I mean, oh my
2: goodness! Those <laughs> could she darn possibly kids. want books
1: for herself? No. no, no,
2: no, 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 no.
1: It was not until after 1900 that women would dominate the operational work of libraries, and longer still until they would have full administrative power and responsibility. This particular gendered history underpins the founding of the American Library Association the first and largest library professional organization in the world. In 1876, 103 librarians from across the country, 90
2: men and 13 women. (laughs) You know, it's it's just nice to be invited. It's just nice to be at the table. 90 men and 13 women. I can't think of a better ratio of the 90 men and 13 women, representing one for each colony.
1: (laughs) One for each colony. Each colony sent a female. Right. So they met and resolved that the mission of the new American Library Association would be to, quote, enable librarians to do their present work more easily and at less expense.
2: Close quote. They're unionizing. They're like, I just wanted wanted to be easy. Basic goal. Yeah, literally, you guys, this could be easier and we could be doing this in a cheaper way. You know, like, come on.
1: At the end of the meeting, according to Ed Holly in his essay, ALA at 100, the register was passed around for all to sign who wished to become charter members, making October 6th, 1876, the birthday of the American Library Association.
2: I just love when things have birthdays. Mm-hmm. It's Isn't nice, it cute it's when like nice. non-human things have birthdays?
1: It's cute. It's, it's cute. We have, a, we have a starting day. It's like an adoption yes. day. <laughs> I meant for, like, pets, only because I saw oh. recently at a pet store, there was, like, a dog cookie that said, like, happy adoption day. And it was, like.
2: Because the dog, I mean, the dog remembers. The dog remembers but, like, the day oh he God. was adopted. September yeah. 17th. What a day. It was a Tuesday.
1: <laughs> it was in Brooklyn. This did not surprise me.
2: <laughs> sure. I mean, God, we're the worst.
1: <laughs> we're the worst. We're the worst. Despite the rapid growth of women in the library profession, the American Library Association would not elect its first woman president, Teresa Elmendorf, until 1911.
2: Of course. And we're going to talk more about okay. women in the library in just a second. I did want to throw in this next section on library school because I just thought it was so interesting because it never occurred to me that there would be something as Like a library school, Mm. but it's a whole thing. They had a whole darn school for library to become a librarian. So, as the stewardship of libraries grew from an elite pastime into a profession for men and women of more diverse backgrounds, librarians quickly developed educational standards for the professionalization. So they're like, "Wait a second, we got a lot of libraries popping up. We kind of gotta." Teach people how to do this. This is now becoming a thing. We got 16,000 volumes. It's a lot. Somebody's got to learn how to do this. These standards were taught through training programs at a growing number of library schools. The first library school was at Columbia University's School of Library Science, which was founded in 1887 by none other than Melville Dewey the creator of the Dewey Decimal System. Hey-ho, alma mater, hey-ho. Hey, ho. hey uh, go, what's the mascot? Lions. Go Lions! <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, I felt, you, that, that came from It is completely heart.
1: appropriate to, chow, to, ch- to cheer for the Columbia Lions for their library system development as opposed to, like, their football team. I just think that's so Yeah. Funny.
2: Absolutely. I mean, come on. Because they suck. Dewey Decimal. <laughs> come on. Come on. It's way Dewey more Decimal helpful. Is still used today. Columbia, it took them three years to win a game. Yeah, exactly right. Like libraries themselves, library schools were often directed by men, but operationally run by women faculty members who taught the majority of classes, which we love. Ooh. Many programs were run not out of colleges, but out of working libraries staffed by women. At the turn of the 20th century, library education was seen as a good career path for primarily white, middle, and working class women who could either not afford or did not want to go to college. Among the career paths available to women at this time, librarianship appealed to many because the training was relatively short, the career path offered public service, and as the nation expanded westward, potential opportunities for adventure. Oh my God. This is literally what the website said. That is bananas. Three reasons. Three reasons to go to library school. Number one, training is pretty short. You know, it's not like these other places where you have to do one year, two year, three years. Pretty short training. Number two, you're serving your public. Like, you're literally doing community service. But most importantly, number three, there's a lot of adventure to be had. So much you adventure. You get to get out of town, honey. You get to go travel and see the world. Go on, get. Manifest that destiny. Let's go. That just tickled me pink. But as I said before, there were a t- Ton of contributions to libraries made by women. So I've pulled a couple of names. Also, our sweet, sweet listener who suggested this episode topic brought up one of these women as well, um, as somebody who is of note. Because I feel like we get caught up in Melville Dewey as kind of the yeah. the person that like did the library thing and is like the library person, Yeah, but there were some other cool badass women who contributed, so we're just gonna go through those really quickly. So the first one, probably the most notable, is Adelaide Hass or Hassie. Adelaide Hassie was the originator of the system for classifying government documents and a tireless advocate for higher wages for women and women's suffrage. Her conflicts with mail supervisor and the New York Public Library's mail board of trustees would eventually cost her her job. But she's like this person who has created this whole system of how we classify government documents. Wow. We love her. Very cool woman. Then there's Tessa Kelso. So Tessa Kelso was the controversial Los Angeles City librarian who from 1889 to 1895... Transformed the Los Angeles Public Library using methods considered radical in their moment. She abolished membership fees and established the first systematic training of any type for library employees. So, this woman, Tessa, comes in and she's like, let's get organized. First of all, no fees. Second of all, we're all doing trainings. Let's go. Yep. Then, next up was Jean Blackwell. So, in 1948, African American activist and librarian Jean Blackwell was appointed acting curator of the Division of Negro Literature, History, and Prints at the 135th Street County Cullen Branch of the New York Public Library. Over the next 32 years, she would lead the growth of the collection and development of the Schomburg Collection for Research in Black Culture, now an international research institution and a leader in its field. I mean, nice. come on. And then finally, two women, Mary Wright Plummer and Josephine Rathbone. So Mary Wright Plummer helped found and then directed the Pratt Institute Library School, a progressive alternative to elitism in turn-of-the-century library education. Along with her colleague, Josephine Rathbone, she pioneered education for children's libraries Elected in 1915, Plummer also served as the second female president of the American Library Association. So we're bringing it all back, which I love. Yeah. So just some cool
1: women. Amazing. Okay, so now we're going to talk about the Carnegie Libraries. So by 1920, less than 150 years after Stallion and the Sheets, Ben Franklin, first donated what would become a town's first public library collection, there were more than 3,500 public libraries in the United States. Well, done. This rapid expansion of the U.S. public library can be traced back to another American man's donation, Mm -hmm. steel magnate Andrew Carnegie. Carnegie's funding had built about half of those 3,500 public libraries, earning him the nickname the patron saint of libraries.
2: Which I didn't know this was a thing, but this is like a whole thing. Did you know about this?
1: I mean, I knew that Carnegie was like a thing thing i didn't realize and that he did like other stuff besides like make money sure because there's like the carnegie like there's a whole foundation i guess i just didn't know what they did yeah you know like i didn't know i had no
2: idea that he like dabbled in the libraries
1: like philanthropic yeah endeavors yeah oh yeah in addition to public libraries carnegie helped fund university library spaces as well as separate public libraries for African-American patrons in places throughout the United States where segregation laws barred them from using other public library spaces. Okay, Carnegie, go off. I mean,
2: go off, Carnegie. Andrew Carnegie showing up at the plate and swinging the bat. I love it. Yeah,
1: great. By the 1990s, nearly all of the 1,795 Carnegie-funded library buildings in the United States were still standing. Holy shit. I, yes. Yes, that's crazy. The impact of Carnegie's funding on the U.S. library system is far-reaching even now. over 100 years since the first Carnegie Library opened to the public, these libraries remain central branches in cities like New York and Pittsburgh, who named their public library system as a whole after Carnegie.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're like, let's just give him the name. Let's just give him the name. I mean, well, sure. give
1: him the name. He gave us the money, let's give him the name. What are we to, who are we to, who are we to quibble? In particular, they helped often underserved, lower-income communities connect with important public services, which they still do. That's yeah. like a huge part of like a library right now.
2: Yeah, it's literally an essential part of a library now. Yep. But those notes touched on something very important, which is this idea of segregated libraries, because that was obviously, I mean, you know our history. You know us. So we're going to talk briefly about segregated libraries and then how they transition into becoming the unsegregation of libraries. So as public libraries spread across the United States at the turn of the 20th century, state and local racial segregation laws were denying African-Americans access to public facilities across the U.S., specifically in the South. In other regions of the country, state and local governments supported discriminatory labor and housing practices that, in concert with prevailing racist social ideas, restricted African-American access to public spaces as well. So, you know, Jim Crow's keeping us from getting into the libraries, in a nutshell. In 1896, the Supreme Court—heard of (laughs) her— Upheld the quote separate but equal facilities as constitutional in Plessy v. Ferguson, which justified the creation of segregated public spaces for African Americans, including schools and libraries, that were in practice inferior and underfunded compared to those available to whites. So have we we mm. I know we've talked about Plessy v. Ferguson, but I do feel like we should just do an entire episode on Plessy v. Ferguson because. Talk yeah, out landmark in a very bad way. Yeah. As public facilities, the earliest public libraries in Southern states excluded African Americans by law. When Andrew Carnegie funded the construction of a new public library in Atlanta in 1902, scholar and activist W.E.B. Du Bois, then a professor at Atlanta University and a strong proponent of African American education, spoke out publicly against the injustice of a public facility that refused service to a full third of Atlanta's population. I mean, yeah, I, yeah, seems like a waste of resources. The work of Du Bois and other activists did not succeed in integrating public libraries, but it would bring funding for African-American branches to the attention of philanthropists like Carnegie. In 1905, in Louisville, Kentucky, they would open the first free public library for African-American readers staffed and operated entirely by African-Americans. Atlanta's first library branch for African-Americans would not open until 1921. 1921. That's so late. Yes. A few important sources would help fund the creation of African-American library services in the South, First of all, Andrew Carnegie's funding for segregated branches and number two, the Works Progress Administration Library Projects to Improve Rural Services. So these two things are huge proponents in helping African-Americans get library access. But, of course, by 1946, just under one-third of the public library system in the U.S. South reported some form of service to African Americans, making library service available to about 34% of the Black population in those states. Wow. Very poor. Despite a lack of funds, materials, and often autonomy, Existing African-American libraries provided vital reading content to their patrons and formed important community spaces for discussion and education. So it's very much a nevertheless-they-persisted type of thing in spite of everything, like, not giving them the opportunity to
1: thrive. Hmm. So then we're going to talk about desegregating the public libraries. Yes. Yes. So although many activists challenged segregation laws through writings and individual action, it was not until the Civil Rights Movement of the 1950s and 1960s that segregated public libraries would be challenged through coordinated, nonviolent protest action. After careful planning, nine members of the local NAACP Youth Council, subsequently known as the Tougaloo Nine, attempted to use the white-only Jackson, Mississippi Public Library on March 27, 1961. When they refused to leave, they were arrested and jailed for disturbing the peace. In 1962, similar student protests occurred at the local library as part of the Albany movement in Albany, Georgia. In Anniston, Alabama, on September 15, 1963, two African-American ministers were attacked by a white mob as they attempted to integrate the Anniston Public Library. These are just a few of the many sit-ins and protests that challenged the segregation of public libraries. And that's all coming from DPLA. Then, in 1954's Brown v. Board of Education, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned the separate but equal rule in a ruling about segregated schools with broader implications. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 would specifically outlaw discrimination in public accommodations, like public libraries. Bless. Mm. Okay. The Voting Rights Act of 1965 would give African-Americans full access to the vote, which granted them power over local government and its public facilities, a.k.a.
2: Libraries. libraries. I love it. So I wanted to obviously do fun facts for this, but I ended up finding, this is very specific, New York Public Library fun facts. Ooh. Funny. Which, I mean, I know not all of our listeners are from New York, obviously, but the New York Public Library is near and dear to our hearts, and the the facts are very fun, I think, and I feel like at least the New York Public Library is something that people uh, do know of, um, especially if you've seen Sex in the City. Carrie is obviously planning on marrying Mr. Big in the New York Public Library. I'm not going to spoil what happens, but, you know... <laughs> watch the film, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? So here are some uh, fun facts, fun facts, fun facts, fun facts, fun facts, facts about the New York Public Library. And this is coming from the New York Public Library. Oh my God, so, so good. So these are the ones that they put out into the universe. Yes. So at the time it opened in 1911, the New York Public Library was the largest marble building ever built in the United States. Who thinks to just use marble? Like, what? That's so crazy. That's a very heavy. It's a very heavy building. Mayor LaGuardia nicknamed the Library Lions Patience and Fortitude in the 1930s because he felt New Yorkers needed to possess these qualities in order to survive the Great Depression.
1: Fuck me up, Mayor LaGuardia. That is some good PR oh, publicity. Man. Patience and fortitude. It's There's like, no New Yorker who would get that now.
2: Oh, my God. They, they'd literally be like, go oh, fuck yourself. Gear yourself. Mayor LaGuardia. We're actually going to build the world's worst airport and name it after you. Goodbye. Like, oh it, imagine being like, you know, there's bread lines you can't. Eat. You don't have jobs. What you need are two things: patience and fortitude. Billy, what I need is money and a bagel. Goodbye. (laughs) It's a bagel. (laughs) Next fun fact: the New York Public Library holds locks of hair from the heads of Charlotte Bronte, Walt Whitman. Mary and Percy Shelley and Wild Bill Hickok among others literal locks of human hair and
1: I'm, where are they kept are they in fortitude and patience they're, in, they're they locked thought. inside
2: the lions they're locked inside They're in the
1: lions. the lions it's the it's the official time capsule of the city of New York
2: Exactly I don't know I I would hope that the, the locks of hair are on display but I'm not entirely sure so, if you do know if they are, let me know. And I want to go and see. I want to see Charlotte Bronte's hair. I want to see it. Next fun fact After Pearl Harbor was attacked, the most valuable volumes and manuscripts at the library were moved to bank vaults around New York City. Ooh. And they're like, they're going to come after the box. They're coming after the box. They're, they're going to come to the, the, the box. box. Get 50 Shades of Grey into the vault. Let's go, go, go. Since 1987, the original Winnie the Pooh and his friends, Eeyore, Piglet, Kanga, and Tigger, have lived at the New York Public Library. So they're literally stuffed animals that are like the, the, the inspiration Aww. behind Winnie the Pooh. Yeah. They are so they, at the public library. I know. Aww. Next fun fact. And these movies are listed, this is how they listed them. Ghostbuster, Spider Man, Ted Two, Breakfast at Tiffany's, and more have been filmed at the New York Public Library.
1: Wow, that's that's I how felt they. Felt like we could have done them. better with that list.
2: I feel like we us start insane. off with Breakfast at Tiffany's and move up in time. And move, you know? yes. We don't need to start with Ghostbusters and then throw in Spider Man and then remind us that not and remind you not Ted One, but Ted. Two. Two. Number this the squeakwell not two. the first one, and then Breakfast at Tiffany's have all been filmed at New York That's Public terrible. Library. There have been more, but these are the ones that the website listed. So this is their this is what they're proud of. And then finally, last fun fact, in the collections, Charles Dickinson's favorite letter opener is present. The shaft of the opener is ivory, but the handle is the embalmed paw of his beloved cat, Bob, <laughs> toenails oh, and all. <laughs> that's utterly disgusting. There's so much to unpack. Ooh. Number one, the cat's name Ooh. is Bob. Bob. Imagine looking at a cat and going, Bob. Bob. That's Bob. That Bob. right there is Bob. And then loving him mm-hmm. so much that you're like, I don't want to let him go, let's, <laughs> let's embalm him. Just Ooh. the feet, just Ooh. the feet, That's just the so single gross. paw of Bob, toenails Aww. and all. Again, from the New York Public Library, I'm not embellishing. They wanted to make sure we knew that in this letter opener were Bob's toenails.
1: That's so gross.
2: We are Ooh. so poor gross, Bob. Poor Bob. That means his poor one out for Bob. were like cut off from his body. I mean, he was, I assume he was dead. I know, but still. Yeah, somewhere that. there's buried a cat with a missing paw. And that's mm. Bob, a three-pawed like that. cat. <laughs> but that, that's the end of the fun facts, and that's the end of our library episode. That was so fun. I know. I mean, library week must be honored.
1: Must. I love Absolutely libraries. Absolutely must.
2: I think they're I think it's the coolest yeah. thing, and I do feel like they I don't know, especially in this age that we live in. I just don't think we utilize libraries in this in the way that they could be utilized. Like oh, everybody I absolutely should have a membership not. to a library. I mean, it's free. You should have one and you should yeah. check out books. Like save save the planet, check out books, <laughs> donate them back. And also, you know, now they offer so many. Other services like we talked about. I mean, there's at the New York Public Libraries, there's you could get information about immigration. If you're an immigrant, you can get immigrant services. You can get language services. You can get voting information. Like there's so many things that you can get at libraries now. Yeah. That I just I'm such a fan, such a fan of what they do.
1: It's not just books. It's not just books.
2: Libraries. It's not just books. But that, you guys, is our library episode. Again, thank you so, so much to our sweet, sweet listener who suggested that we do this topic. If you have an episode topic that you think would be great, please let us know and I we will do it. We'll do it. And that's that. But in the meantime... We love you so, so much. And if you like what you heard, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Let's Get Civical. Please rate us. Please review us. And please, please subscribe to us. We love you so, so much. And we will see you next Wednesday.
1: Goodbye.